This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I think I have to confess that I'm really not very interested in dying. (laughs) I'm interested in awakening. And most people until they really know they're going to die, have a remarkably strong ability to keep the radical surrender that spiritual awakening requires at a comfortable distance. In Buddhism, before one begins to practice, there are called the mind-turning truths, the truths that turn our mind toward the Dharma, toward practice. And the first one of these is you're going to die, but you don't know when. What could be more intellectually obvious? In having a life in which I am regularly coming in contact with people who are approaching death, it keeps reminding me what is important. My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, many of you know, founded the San Francisco Zen Center, said that The most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing? I've got a a client now who's a 22-year-old, very beautiful young man who has a brain tumor. And he just said to his mother a few days ago, and she reported this to me, he said, as I'm getting closer to where I'm going, I'm becoming less and less afraid. So we're all getting closer to. I have a very dear friend who takes in rescue dogs, hospice rescue dogs, very old dogs who are dying. She's the mother of my son, and I go up and visit them every other weekend in Placerville. So a few weeks ago, she got a dog named Charlie, who two weeks before had his eyes taken out because he had this very painful eye infection Uh, They couldn't really treat the infection, so they took his eyes out. So here's this 15-year-old Lhasa Apso dog. For two weeks now, hadn't been able to see. He's this very brave little creature moving around the house. I took him for walks. He would bump into things, but he mapped out what the room was like. And then when Christmas came in, the Christmas tree was put in. He got upset because there's a tree where... 
there hadn't been a tree, right? <laughs> it was very easy to have compassion for Charlie. In fact, what I'm going to talk about today is compassion, and the title is Compassion is Not an Emotion. On the other hand, I would like to say that when you die, Donald Trump will be at your bedside. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that any place that you unconsciously react to that notion of Donald Trump, whether in a positive or a negative way, is going to be part of your makeup now and until you really have compassion for that part of you that reacts to him and that part of him that does what he does, that is going to be something that is making it difficult to fall into the groundless nature that is our being. My dear friend Ramdas, who I'm sure many of you know, died uh, December 22nd, has this wonderful metaphor. He says, spiritual practice is like jumping out of an airplane and partway down realizing you don't have on a parachute which is pretty scary. And then a, a little further of the way down, realizing that it's okay because there's no ground. <laughs> when we're sitting, when we're living and moving about, is it possible to have compassion for the places in us where as we're falling, we're afraid that there are going to be rocks coming up in the air as we're, we're, we're tumbling through space? There is this intrinsic tension or conflict in human existence between our very strong need to know what's going on, to have some conceptualization of our life, and on the other hand, the purely groundless nature of reality. So there is a conflict between ego identification and the spiritual context in which all of that is happening. In that sense of us being separate, that part of you or me that might be bothered by Donald Trump or fall in love with Charlie in an unconscious way, is there also a part of us that is not changing, that does not die? And in a way, I think there's really no better preparation for dying than meditation. And that, in a way, meditation is learning how to die. So, in my experience, the crucial part of spiritual practice that is often the place that causes us to become kind of stuck is compassion and lack of compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer together. It's not... I'm going to have compassion for you, or I'm going to have compassion for Charlie, or I'm going to have compassion for Donald Trump. It's I'm going to be able to be with that part of me or them that is suffering. So it's very challenging. As I was driving here today, I was coming down 22nd Street. There's a lot of homeless people sleeping on the side of the road, on the, on the sidewalk. And it was difficult to see that and stay open, to not conceptualize, oh, I've got a talk to go to, I'm 
driving down the road. I'm, I'm not here really with the suffering that's going on right here in front of me. Compassion with passion. Originally, passion meant to suffer. The, the passion of Christ. What happened to Christ before he was crucified. But isn't it interesting how that word has changed from passion meaning suffering to what we think of it as today, passion as being really alive. And is it possible to feel compassion, I'm sorry, to feel passion without suffering? Is it possible to bring all of our passion to our practice? So when Suzuki Roshi says, the most important thing is finding the most important thing, he's really talking about passion. I think it's easy to get into a rut when one is practicing. I look around the room and I'm I'm sure many people in the room have been meditating for decades even. It's possible to get to this place. It's even easy to get to this place where as we're sitting, we're getting a little more comfortable in our bodies, in our minds. We're improving our personality. Is it possible to begin to notice that place that is not dying moment to moment? There are some defining qualities of compassion that I'd like to talk about. The first one is spaciousness, a spacious mind, an empty mind. Buddhism talks a lot about a spacious mind. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form, it says in the Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness is everybody in this room, we have all this form, but it's really only empty. It's only spacious. It's beyond concept. But emptiness is form. Form is real. The suffering in this room is real. The suffering of those people on the sidewalk is completely real. Can we, as a practice, begin to notice when our hearts are spacious versus those times when the heart begins to contract? What does it feel like when I'm taking Charlie for a walk and he's so happy to be out in nature and uh, even though he's blind, you can, he just had that dog thing of sniffing and hearing and actually for dogs, vision is not one of their major ways of relating to the world. He, he still had the other thing. So being around Charlie, feeling that sense of spaciousness of the two of us being there together, walking down the road, versus I've got a son now who's 17 and a half. And when General Suleiman was assassinated a couple of weeks ago, 10 days ago, whenever that was, he said, you know, Dad, in a few months I have to register for the draft when I turn 18. Maybe they're going to send me over to the Middle East to shoot at people and to be shot at. Is it possible when I hear that, or when so many other people think about what's going on in the world, to maintain a mind that is spacious. Beginning to notice as a practice those places where the mind contracts. Ramdas also said suffering is grace. Now that's a tough message. Pretty much the standpoint of ego is to get away from suffering. How can I notice what's going on and fix it? How can I use meditation practice as a way of improving myself. So the question comes then, what is it you want? What is the most important thing? If the most important thing is being happy, 
then suffering as grace doesn't make too much sense. If the most important thing is being free, if the most important thing is the truth of the moment, then suffering is grace because suffering is showing us that place where the heart is not empty and spacious. That each time there's that contracted feeling, that's a piece of grace because it's a perfect exact pointing at here is the place where you and I can investigate a little more deeply. I'd like to read a quote from Pema Chodron. She's talking about bodhicitta, the awakened heart, the awakening heart, uh, the qualities of loving kindness and compassion. Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, so also is nurturing our ability to feel compassion. Compassion is more emotionally challenging than loving kindness because it involves the willingness to feel pain. It definitely requires the training of a warrior. When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. Compassion practice is daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. The trick to doing this is to stay with emotional stress without tightening into aversion to let fear soften us rather than harden into resistance. So when we're sitting and we're noticing that we've been lost in our mind for the last few seconds or a lot of seconds, and we come back to being present, are we doing that with compassion or is there some slight self-judgmental yanking ourselves back to being present? That very simple moment in which we notice we're caught, even in a subtle way of being caught, is the place in which compassion is being <coughs> born. Again and again, being kind to ourselves, having compassion for ourselves when we notice that we're caught. I think it's easy doing Buddhist practice to, as Westerners, to not quite fully understand the teaching in the sense that I notice that when I'm sitting, the mind comes and the mind goes, sensations in the body. It's very easy to stay on the surface of the mind. Just watch this thought, watch that thought, come back to the breath, watch this thought, that thought. And it's easy to miss the forest for the trees in the sense that maybe there's an underlying sense of anxiety or of agitation. And by just staying on the surface, not being with the deeper sensations, what does it feel like to be afraid? What is that like in the body? Not as a concept, but what does it really feel like? Allows us then to, by staying on just the moment-to-moment -moment stuff, not feeling deeper sensation. Is it possible at times to plunge into what it is we're not compassionate about, these patterns in the mind and in the body? So that desire for pleasant feelings often subverts compassion into sorrow. Can we think about what's going on in the world and keep a spacious mind? Can we think about those people in that airliner that got shot down, what it was like being in that plane? as it was going down toward the 
down toward the ground. Another defining quality of compassion is a quality of connectedness. Rumi has this wonderful quote, grief is the garden of compassion. Grief is the garden of compassion. Grief is the difficult emotions that arise in response to feeling separate. Somebody's died, somebody's left. We feel sad because somebody's left. We feel angry, we feel frightened. Grief is the result of feeling separate. Compassion is the result of feeling connected, being able to suffer with. When Ramdas died, I got so many emails and text messages. Are you okay? Are you okay? What are you feeling? People were assuming that I must feel separate because Ramdas had left this plane. And in fact, I felt pretty connected with him and happy that he had gotten out of his body that had really not been working too well. Is it possible to keep connecting with suffering, particularly within ourselves? If, if I can't be with my own anger, how can I have compassion for the anger of another person? It's going to be really, really difficult. The third quality of compassion is having a warm heart. I think that's a pretty obvious one. Is my heart warm, vulnerable, or is it closed and, and uh, cool? The other quality that the Dalai Lama talks about is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. Compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. Pity is the enemy of compassion. Pity allows us to keep a distance. Is it possible to feel equal to Charlie? Is it equal to be equal to Donald Trump? Is it possible to be equal to the homeless person lying on the sidewalk? Equal in the sense that we're both sentient human beings on our path trying to be present. And not only feel equal, then to switch yourself. And compassion is, once again, it's being connected, it's switching, it's being able to be there with another human being. Now, in terms of stages of childhood development, this open-hearted stage of conscious relationship doesn't really happen until after a child gets to be five, six, seven, eight years old. And before we get to that stage, we have to learn to be present. We have to learn to be mindful or particularly somatically to be grounded and being down in the belly, hara, being centered. There has to become somebody before we can become nobody. Ramdas's last movie was called Becoming Nobody. And that's a great idea, but he had this wonderful suffering his grace of 22 years of having a major stroke that left him very limited in his ability to walk and to talk. So becoming nobody is going to be really scary until we've practiced becoming somebody. Can we be centered in the midst of a body and a life where there is so much suffering going on? The first noble truth, life is suffering. Life is unsatisfactory. The second noble truth is suffering is caused by attachment. Third noble truth, let go of attachment, no more suffering. So that second noble truth, uh, suffering is caused by attachment, is really 
pointing at, can we be compassionate? Can we have compassion for those places where we see attachment? A number of years ago, I, I gave a, a keynote address to the Northern California Psychiatric Association. And I was in a hospital theater room with theater seating with uh, a few hundred psychiatrists, if you can imagine what that was like. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at the time when John, John Ashcroft was our attorney general who had clothed the naked statue of justice at the Department of Justice because he was, he was scandalized by a naked statue. And I said to these psychiatrists, until you can have compassion for John Ashcroft, you can't have compassion for your patients. And half of them got it and the other half started yelling at me and saying, wait a minute, you know, he's a bad guy. Does what's going on politically right now close your heart? Does it close my heart? Will Donald Trump be at your bedside in a disruptive way when you're going to sleep tonight or when you're on your deathbed? Can we say what my friend with the brain tumor said? The closer I get to where I'm going, the less fear I feel. In my practice, I'm probably more of a devotional person than a Zen person. I'm more a Tibetan Vajrayana practitioner who works with embodying the deity. And to me, there's this balance between faith and fear. That when there's enough faith, there's no fear. But when I'm in some part of my life where there's more fear that overwhelms my faith, then I'm caught in fear. Noticing that balance between faith and fear. What is, the, what is it that you have faith in? Do you have faith in your own true nature? Do you have faith in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? The Dalai Lama says that in this age, the, the Buddha is becoming the Sangha. The Sangha is becoming the Buddha. That's not some statue or it's not some historical figure even teaching so much as the community. It's really hard to do what I've been talking about today on your own. It's almost impossible. So that the Sangha becomes so, so very important. Very often we're addicted to suffering. The first thing you have to do on the spiritual path is let go of your attachment to your own suffering. They were building a big hydroelectric dam in Africa that was going to create a big lake that was going to drown a lot of big mammals. So they tranquilized and caged and transported these mammals a few hundred miles to a very similar but brand new place. And when they opened up the cages, the animals didn't want to go out of the cage. They would rather stay in the familiar cage than go out into this new unknown territory. Uh, I'm going to start going back into San Quentin in a few weeks. I was I had a group there for some years for people with AIDS, HIV, back when the epidemic was at its peak. And very often when people come out of prison, it's a very difficult transition. They're used to being encaged. This radical surrender, this falling out of the airplane, jumping out of the airplane, but then getting scared because there is the sense of groundlessness, this empty heart. The heart is truly empty and spacious. We, we keep trying to conceptualize it, keep trying to understand our relationships with other people. In 
my experience working as a meditation teacher and as a guide to the dying, the, the primary challenge, this ability to have compassion for who we are and what it is that's going on around us. Having this relationship with death and an inner contemplative practice, in my humble opinion, is the best practice for this very confusing age in which we live. Trungpa Rinpoche said, until you come in intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. You'll be able to be a bit happier. You'll be able to have a more efficient personality structure. But until you really know in your bones you're going to die, and we might die before we get out of this room, then we won't be getting the, the, the true deep fruit that practice offers. Roger Ebert, when he was approaching his death from a very difficult facial neck cancer, was typing out questions, uh, responses to questions about how he was doing. And he said, as I'm typing this sentence, I don't know that I'm going to be alive to type the period at the end of the sentence. When we look at this mind-turning truth that you're going to die, but you don't know when, yeah, I get that, but I'm going to get out of this room alive. I'm going to get home alive. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. If we really didn't know we were getting out of this room alive, how much would we love each other right now? What is the most important thing? Comments or questions, please. So traditionally, compassion from Eastern traditions is taught as compassion for the other person. And it's assumed that if you're a practitioner, you have compassion for yourself. The Dalai Lama on his third visit to America said, now I'm beginning to understand, and it really makes me sad, you Americans don't like yourselves. So that we often have to extrapolate these teachings of how we're practicing compassion for and with other suffering beings to having compassion for ourselves. I've been facilitating these groups. And in fact, I've been a meditation teacher. I was trying to calculate how many years that was, but it's somewhere between 45 and 48 or something like that. And still, it seems that there's a, a really common misunderstanding of what compassion is. Compassion is not just being nice and warm and fuzzy, but it's keeping the heart open in the context of suffering, whether it's your suffering or the suffering of somebody else. So you're sitting there, you're meditating, and you start thinking about something really unpleasant. Some Maybe you've got a problem going on in your body, in your relationships, or your finances or something. Difficult emotions, difficult sensations. And does the mind then contract around those feelings? Do you identify with, I'm somebody who is sick. I'm somebody who's having a hard time. Uh, one of the easiest ways to cultivate compassion for self is working with unpleasant sensation. I recently had to go to the dentist. There was decay under a, a, a tooth that had a crown on it. So they had to take the crown on and drill on the tooth with a live nerve in it. 
And I said I didn't want any anesthetic. Now, I'm not bragging. I'm not saying you should do this. <laughs> but, yes, I felt unpleasant sensations for about 20 or 30 seconds. But I didn't have to have that needle in my gum. I didn't have that for the rest of the afternoon. I didn't have those drugs in my bloodstream. Is it possible to feel something unpleasant and not automatically react to it? Is it possible to be awake during being afraid? What does it feel like to be afraid? Almost never do we feel fear. We remember fear. We conceptualize fear. But as soon as fear arises, we almost always focus on the trigger. I'm afraid of that out there. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a slogan in the Lojong teachings, drive all blames into oneself. So that as soon as we're blaming the traffic or the weather or the politics for how we're feeling, rather than our relationship to what's going on out there, healing is not going to be happening. We're, we're driving the blame back into ego clinging rather than the environment. So the two people can have the same sensations or the same emotional arising, and one of them suffers and the other one doesn't. Not beginning to uh, do the practice with Donald Trump or environmental catastrophe, but in more subtle ways, how are you suffering? What is it that bothers you a bit? Maybe even practice, you turn on Netflix, you turn on a sad movie or a scary movie, and just can you be aware of the sensations without conceptualization? Awakening compassion is really part of a healing process, a healing path. The first step in healing is you have to be aware of, you have to be present for what needs to be healed. Mindfulness. In this, in sense of embodiment, it's being grounded and centered, the martial art of being you. The second step is opening the heart of compassion. There have been studies done by these psychologists, Buddhist psychologists at the University of Wisconsin Madison, showing, not too surprisingly, that mindfulness leads to a, a greater sense of well-being. But what they found is that if you add compassion, you go towards well-being much more quickly. So now there's two things to do. You're aware of what's going on, and you open your heart. You feel compassion for suffering. You feel loving kindness if there's no suffering going. Compassion is simply loving kindness in the context of suffering. Stephen Levine poetically put it, compassion is keeping your heart open in hell. Then the third step. So... Hinayana practice, you've got to be aware of what's going on. Mayana practice, having compassion for the suffering. Vajrayana practice, that even the suffering is the deity. We are Chinrezi. We are the god of compassion. We are Tara. We are Manjushri. That suffering itself is what is taking us back home. It's showing us the way so that we can have faith we can realize that it's all the deity from a Vajrayana perspective, eventually then going beyond the yanas into non-dual, non-practice, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Mahaati, Advaita Vedanta, that we are whole and that that is what we die into. So that to the extent that, to the extent that we're 
able to rest in that wholeness, it makes it that much easier to die. So two, two paths. One path is compassion for suffering, working with the difficult. The other is realizing our wholeness. One of the main impediments to compassion is judgment, the judging mind, the superego. And that's a whole other talk that we're not, we're not going to have time for. We only have a few more minutes here. But in answer to that first question is one of the ways to cultivate self-compassion is to begin to notice the way you judge. You judge yourself in particular and by extension, judging what's going on in the world. And can you really feel what it's like to have a judging mind? It's suffering. But at the same time, from the standpoint of the ego, it's a little more comforting to be judge all, to be judging yourself for all the bad stuff out there than surrendering into what it actually feels like to be with the totally groundless nature of reality. This falling through the sky with no, with no ground, which is, it's, we're talking about radical surrender. We're talking about dying moment to moment to who we think we are. So having these, Unpleasant conceptualizations is in some way, from the standpoint of the ego, preferable to dying, metaphorically. There's really two kinds of practice. Practice with the goal and practice without a goal. So just sitting, Suzuki Roshi, Soto Zen. Just put your butt in the cushion, put your, <laughs> put your butt in the cushion and just watch. Okay. But because we are psychological beings here in the West, whether you're going to therapy or somatic therapy, you can still bring practice with the goal to meditation sometimes of beginning to notice what patterns habitually keep arising again and again and again. My first guru, Bob Dylan, said, what price do we have to pay to get out of going through all these things twice? How many tens of thousands of times does the same pattern arise in your meditation practice. So if you begin to notice this pattern, then you can do a practice like taking and sending Tong Len or, or just compassion for that part of you. Suppose there's some pattern you begin to notice. Can you then begin to have compassion for how much suffering you've had in your life because of that one pattern? And it's not just painting a picture in your mind. It's suffering with together can you can you remember how much you've suffered and open your heart to that or when you see a homeless person or you, you think of donald trump you imagine how they're suffering and then you feel it it's not just okay he's he's having a hard time and i'm going to shoot some compassion at him compassion is a state of being it's not an emotion so compassion is for yourself and for what's going on around you and for all beings. It goes up, down, back, front, right, left. And it's not just beaming it toward yourself or towards somebody else. It's easy to use practice as a way of avoiding suffering. John Wellwood, who died about a year ago, talked about spiritual bypassing, that we're identified as a meditator and using <clears throat> meditation to push our suffering away. So I'm afraid I'll have to leave it at that. That's a great question. Uh, I do have a website, the most complete site on the web, with a lot of free lectures, 
guided meditations that go into that question particularly in much more depth than we're going to have time to do today. Thank you all very much. Ram. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.